0: Did you just
1: pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply.
0: Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring. not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life.
2: PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since
0: 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank, National Association, member FDIC. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you... Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey there, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. I'm Molly. So Molly, sex addiction has been in the news a lot lately. Oh boy, has it? And to be honest, we positioned this podcast to hopefully publish around the time of the Masters Golf Tournament, because Tiger Woods is making his comeback.
2: Yes, and if there are any words that have been associated with Tiger Woods lately, sex addiction. Yes, and that has led to a lot of online discussion about whether sex addiction is a real thing or mm-hmm. if it's just an excuse that a cheating husband like Tiger can use for having a lot of mistresses. Um, I would, I would love to meet a woman who hasn't been a mistress of Tiger Woods because it seems like everyone has. That's Hello, a joke. Molly. Yeah, <laughs> that's a joke. <laughs> the mistresses of Tiger Woods are getting far too much attention. But anyway. Is it real? Is it a thing? Mm-hmm. That's what we decided to find out. Yeah, because it
1: first really popped up into pop culture in 2008 when David Duchovny checked himself
2: into rehab mm-hmm. for sex addiction. I started to wonder if it would be the new exhaustion. You know how celebrities are always saying that they had to go to rehab for exhaustion? Uh, I wondered if it would become the new... that new.
1: uh No excuse. Well, it seems like it. All of a sudden, everybody's talking about sex addiction. So let's get to the bottom of this. What are
2: they talking about when they say that?
1: Sex addiction, according to Psych Central, is best described as a progressive intimacy disorder characterized by compulsive sexual thoughts and acts. Now, the National Council on Sexual Addiction and Compulsivity has defined sex addiction as, quote, engaging in persistent and escalating patterns of sexual behavior acted out despite increasing negative consequences to self and others. So it's basically having and acting on sexual urges to the point that it
2: disrupts your life. Right. It's not people who just necessarily like sex and have a lot of it. Yeah. It, there has to be some element of it ruining your life in some mm-hmm. way. You probably it's affecting your job, affecting your other relationships, etc. And it's not necessarily just having sex with another person. It can also be an addiction to porn, uh, masturbating excessively to the point where, you know, you may not go to work because you just need to stay home and, and be, have some alone time. Mm-hmm.
1: And this might not even have anything to do with deriving sexual pleasure because CNN points out that a lot of people who are sex addicts Don't even like the process of sex itself. They're just using it to numb
2: out painful feelings, or kill time, or just stop feeling lonely. Yes, it's it's an addict. It can be an addiction in the same way that drinking is an addiction, where you just have to do it. It's not even because you're deriving any pleasure from it anymore. It's just an impulse you cannot stop. Mm -hmm. And according to the Mayo Clinic, it affects three to six percent of adults in the United States.
1: And supposedly, sex addiction has been also on the rise in the past. 10 years or so, because of the internet. Basically, we have more access to sex than ever before, and therefore people are just feeding it more and more 24-7 on the internet. Now, it is not listed, I think that we should note, it is not in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Psychiatric Disorders, which is the APA's handbook that we've talked about before in our uh, podcast on eating disorders, It is not listed as a specific clinical disorder. It is
2: just listed under sexual disorders, not otherwise specified. Right. And I do want to draw again this distinction between sex for pleasure and sex drives that you can't control. Because Mm -hmm. when the term is used for Tiger Woods, I think it's a little bit misleading because we just don't know. I mean, it feels like we know him because he's in the paper every day, but we seem to remind ourselves that we don't know the guy and we don't know if this was something that he couldn't control or if it was just a lot of affairs. Having a lot of affairs does not necessarily mean you are a sex addict. Right. Uh, it could just mean that you are having a lot of affairs.
1: Yeah. And so that's lead some led some people to question, I mean, is this an actual neurological disorder where he could not stop himself from doing anything or are we just giving a cheating man a pass? Right.
2: So let's go into how you might decide if you're at risk for this condition.
1: Now, Sex Addicts Anonymous has a self-assessment test. You can take these are 12 questions. And if you answer yes to more than one of these questions, you might be a sex addict. Okay,
2: You want to read a few? All right. Do you keep secrets about your sexual
1: behavior or romantic fantasies from those important to you? And do you lead a double life? Have your sexual practices cause you legal problems? Could your sexual practices cause you legal problems? Do your sexual activities involve coercion, violence, or threat of disease? Does your preoccupation with sexual fantasies cause problems in any area
2: of your life, even when you do not act out on those fantasies? I have a few more. Have your desires driven you to have sex in places or with people you would not normally choose? Do you need greater variety, increased frequency, or more extreme sexual activities to achieve the same level of excitement or relief? Do you frequently want to get away from a partner after having sex? Do you feel remorse, shame, or guilt after a sexual encounter? And does your pursuit of sex or sexual fantasy conflict with your moral standards or interfere with your personal spiritual journey? So these questions
1: can also be troubling for people who wonder whether or not sex addiction is real and valid because they would say that for plenty of people, they have hidden fantasies Mm -hmm. that might not be necessarily socially acceptable. It might not be vanilla missionary
2: style, but it's just something they want. Yeah. Sex columnist Dan Savage had a really good point in a a slate piece you sent me about whether we are just demonizing all sex that doesn't fit cultural norms that we think it should. Mm-hmm. Essentially, if you're not, you know, married and having, you know, as Kristen put it, very vanilla, plain sex, if you're doing anything that's outside of a cultural norm stereotype, then yes, you must be a deviant and thus you must be a sex addict.
1: Right. Because let's say, Molly, someone has uh, bondage fantasies, mm-hmm. okay, outside of the social norm, if you will, um, and probably something that they might not share with their partner, does that necessarily mean that they're a sex addict or that they just like to get be tied up? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, is that, is one, is that wrong that they have those
2: kind of fantasies? Right. So I think that, you know, a troubling thing within this diagnosis right now is it does seem to demonize some forms of sex that aren't necessarily addictive behaviors. And I think that that's why the Tiger Woods Association, again, kind of rubs people the wrong way, because we don't know if you know, this is a guy who just wanted to have a lot of sex or if they had, uh, you know, just the drive that was consuming his life. So Molly, to maybe enlighten us a little bit about this whole situation, we should
1: look to someone who has been through rehab for sex addiction. Uh, And there's this guy named Benoit Denizet-Lewis who wrote a piece for the New York Times Modern Love column in which he shares his past problems with sex addiction.
2: Right. He opens with a story when he's 24 years old and he has driven three hours away from his home. He has skipped one of his close friends' weddings because he is trying to hook up and honestly with two guys he met off the Internet. Um, one of the guys doesn't show, so he goes with the backup plan. And he just speaks of, you know, how that was kind of a turning point where he, you know, he was three hours from home. He'd had sex with this guy he didn't know, who had a boyfriend. He was upset because the other guy didn't show. And he realized that something was wrong with this picture that you know, he was essentially disgusted with himself for letting this overtake his life. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and he says, uh, I suspect that my addiction is a misguided attempt to find the acceptance and unconditional love that I didn't feel growing up. And that's often a theme that we'll see with, um, with sex addiction diagnoses as well, there's usually some kind of childhood trauma it goes back to or sexual abuse or parental neglect. So we see that same theme coming up and, um, and he talks about, um, if you ask alcoholics about the first time they became drunk, many will say it was the moment that they finally felt okay in the world. I never had that sensation while drunk or stoned, but I did feel it for the first time when I entered a gay man's gay men's chat room while in college. In a kind of hypnotic tra- trance, I sent out photos of my myself to rave reviews. And then everything starts to snowball. He says within three months, I had hooked up with 20 guys online. Within six months, I was skipping out on friends so that I could spend nights in chat rooms. I mean, this really sounds like addictive behavior. It was Mm -hmm. overtaking his life. He was alienating himself from friends and family so that he could basically have cyber
2: sex with strangers. Right. And when he said that that was the first time he felt, you know, like a normal person, that made a lot of sense. And then he said how you know, how ephemeral that feeling was, how you just had to keep seeking it out mm-hmm. and how it was, you know, it, it just never came back the way it it did, but it was this constant search to reclaim that. Um then he writes about how he did give treatment a chance and this this will bring us into sort of the the controversy about how you treat something that you're not even sure is an addiction. Um he writes about how he went to one center where uh the men would write empathy letters where they would, you know, try to identify all the hurt that they had caused their wives because, you know, many of these people are married um, and they are doing real damage to friends, spouses, domestic partners. And, you know, the wives, meanwhile, would send the men these cost letters that detailed, you know, in, in very sad detail, all the all the things that, you know, have been broken or hurt. And that was one way they did did treatment. They also did a lot of journaling, and one uh, excerpt he included in this article was something he wrote in his journal where he was trying to give voice to this this compulsion mm-hmm. to keep having anonymous sex. He wrote, "I will write in the voice of he wrote in the voice of his addiction, I will make Benoit lie and manipulate and chase sex every hour of the day until he can't feel anything anymore until everything good and decent about him is removed. He needs me. His life is boring when I'm not in charge. I control him. I keep him numb so he can function." make him feel good, and I make him feel worthless. The minute he steps out of this stupid rehab, I'll start whispering in his ear. That's all it takes, whispers. I win. I always win. Mm -hmm. So when you hear about sex addiction from this
1: perspective, from this first-person perspective, it definitely sounds like a very serious issue, like a, a valid mental disorder. And there is a guy named Martin Kafka who is sort of the expert on sex addiction and treatment, I would say in the U.S., who, um, studies this at McLean Hospital in Belmont, Massachusetts. And we found a New York Times Magazine piece profiling Kafka and his, uh, and basically this whole issue of what is sex addiction and sort of does it reside in the brain? What is it related to? And, uh, it's interesting. He said one of his biggest breakthroughs was when he noticed a similarity between um, these sex addicts, they were all men who he was treating, and women with eating disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, the fact that uh, they both involve the difficulties experiencing um, satisfaction as well as a general dysregulation for these appetite drives, something completely uncontrollable and outside of their power. And he thinks that it might have something to do with serotonin levels in the brain. Uh, the article references a 1969 study published in Science in that found that in rats, when their serotonin levels drop in the brain, their arousal goes up. And there's also this inverse relationship between dopamine and serotonin. There was another study on male bears, actually, Of all things, it seems like male bears would be hard to study, uh, that found that before they mated, their dopamine levels would shoot up and the serotonin levels would go down. And hence their libidos would, their bear libidos would go up. And then after they mated, the opposite occurs. The serotonin rises, the dopamine falls. So they think that it might have something to do with these, uh, these levels of
2: Brain chemicals. Right. So if you know that there's something about the serotonin that you can address, you might think that that lends itself to an easy treatment. We have selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors mm-hmm. like Prozac. And uh, Dr. Kauf has put a few men on Prozac and has actually found that uh, it turns almost as like a chemical castration they kept referring it to because you totally lose libido. They get rid of their sex addiction. By but- losing their sex drive.
1: Yeah, by losing... There's sex drive. And for some of these men, that's actually a huge relief.
2: Yeah, they're fine with that. Yeah. Dr. Kafka is hoping that he can treat the sex addiction without affecting sex arousal or desire because it is healthy to have a sexual desire. Mm-hmm. It's essential to repopulating the species. Um, so he's hoping that one day he can figure out enough about the brain to where he could give a man a drug, you know, that's not Prozac and just doesn't completely kill the libido. And he has a lot of interesting theories that maybe, um, the part of our brain that controls the deviant behaviors is different than the one that just controls normal sexual behaviors. And I was surprised to learn, too, from Kafka's research,
1: uh, is that they're still not entirely sure how sexual arousal works in the brain. They haven't exactly been able to pinpoint every single location, the exact functioning of it. And so they really can't go in and say, well, this guy has an enlarged hypothalamus. Therefore, you know, he has, an enlarged libido, you know, mm-hmm. they can't exactly uh, map out the neurology of arousal. So it's still a big question, which has led to, I guess, other treatments they have to rely on that might not be as precise um, to address this issue of sex addiction, because in a way you could draw a very loose comparison between sex addiction and eating disorders. For instance, with an eating disorder, obviously the food is the issue. At the heart of the matter, but you don't want to eliminate the food. You can't eliminate the food. And you also don't want to demonize eating because like sex, food is necessary for human functioning.
2: Right. I mean, it's the kind of thing where, you know, if you're treating an alcohol addiction, the goal is no alcohol. Yeah. But that's not the approach that people are taking with treating sex addiction uh in some clinics they'll have people make a list of what the what the bad behaviors are and they're just not allowed to do those so if your problem was let's say um masturbating every morning if you did that then that would be yes a fall back into your sex addiction whereas having sex with a spouse would not be a sign of the sex addiction manifesting itself having sex with 10 women in addition to your wife that might be a sign of it it's all about finding for that person what um the middle ground is. Mm-hmm. Now, other doctors, you know, are, are taking maybe a more aggressive approach and reconditioning men to disassociate uh, pleasure from the uh, behaviors that used to bring them pleasure. Mm-hmm. So there are a wide variety of treatments in how people are trying to approach this, not really knowing exactly how it comes to be. Now, Molly, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but we keep using men
1: mm-hmm. as examples mm-hmm. with sex addiction. And statistically, men are the ones who have a bigger problem with sex addiction. But
2: women are, can be sex addicts too. True. And I think that this is one of those places where um, there's an uncomfortable double standard for me because we were talking about how um, we've used sex addiction in some cases to demonize uh, certain kinds of sex. Mm-hmm. But I also think that we might throw the term too easily at a woman just because she has a lot of sex.
1: Yeah, and and there's also a distinction between the how sex addiction works for men and sex addiction works for women because according to the society for the advancement of sexual health a lot of times they will refer to a woman's sex addiction as merely love addiction it always comes back to a woman's need for intimacy and closeness these women you know aren't actually you know needing the the climax or the Shot of dopamine from, uh, from having sex with someone. They really just want to lie tenderly in someone's arms and feel close to someone for, if only a fleeting moment.
2: Right. Women couldn't possibly like sex according to this, this and it, depiction of it. Yeah. And it, and it does come up again and
1: again. And even, uh, even Susan Cheever, who recently wrote a book about her own sex addiction problem, kind of perpetuates this in an article we found in the Times online. Where she was saying that she thinks that her sex addiction came from, uh, her parents never telling her that she was pretty and feeling unsupported by them and how, you know, it really was just this quiet quest for love. And we see that theme over and over again where it's just kind of this, um, I guess sort of a mating drive for women. Whereas with men, it's just this more primitive urge to just spread their seed and leave.
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess another reason I find the term uncomfortable is that it just really does tie up a lot of societal conceptions about men and women and sex, which is already just, I think, a battleground of stereotypes and myths. But I will say what was interesting to me is that women do seem to also have a co-addiction when they have a sex addiction. They might also be, um, suffering with addiction, addiction to alcohol and eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Some sort of impulse control problem could possibly be the thing that kind of triggers this constant need for sexual gratification.
1: Yeah. And I guess kind of compounding all of those disorders together would also lead you to question too, like, well, are these just all symptoms of a different disease altogether? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So again and again, Molly, throughout this conversation, we keep coming back to this gray area of, on the one hand, we have Kafka's patients who obviously have a problem with sex addiction, mm-hmm. genuinely, there seems to be something going on in their brains that's driving them to this. And then on the other hand, we do have this, uh, you know, sort of the Tiger
2: Woods question of just cheating men is it a is it a pop psychology term do we see a man who cheats repeatedly and think oh sex addict
1: right are we just demonizing someone's maybe elevated libido right and search for
2: maybe i don't know maybe kinkier sex too that would make us uncomfortable right that's the question we can't answer it so we turn as always to our faithful listeners Mm -hmm. let us know your thoughts on sex addiction if it's real if it's not what you think about it. The email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And we shall finish with a few emails from that email address. Uh, One is from Mary, who we have to give major props to because she counted all the times we said poop in our poop podcast, uh, which was called What's the Scoop on Lady Poop? Now, you might remember, Kristen, that at the end you said something like, we've probably said poop 65 times. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, it's more than that. And I was right. Per usual, <laughs> I didn't want to say it. You managed to say the word poop or poops, pooped, pooping, etc. 73 times in a 22-minute episode. That's an average of three poops a minute. Thank you, Mary, for counting. You are truly a saint for doing that.
1: You know, I bet that we topped the poop record with sex in this
2: episode. True. There's always a where's Waldo word in our <laughs> podcast.
1: Yes. Speaking of poop, we've got another one here from Kim. She said, just listen to your podcast on girl poop. And I got to say, I loved it. In the words of Frank Reynolds on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, poop is funny. Thank you for that reference. you got to love Frank. I totally got you when you were talking about the waiting game, but some of my girlfriends and I go the opposite way in the right circumstance. We nicknamed it the group poop. It started a few years ago when we were at a restaurant on a road trip. There were four of us, and we took up all four stalls at once. One of us just announced she was going to go for it, and after that, we just all went for it. And by it, she's meaning... Poop. It ended up being a rather fun bonding experience, laughing about farting and splashing and everything. We still joke about it and do it again when the right situation arises. Um, Thank you, Kim, for the anecdote, but I'm going to say I'm going to be on high alert next time (laughs) I see a group of four women walking to the
2: bathroom at the same time. Giggling. Because it might be a group poop. (laughs) All right. If you don't want a group poop, Kristen, then I've got an email from Paige that may help you. Um, She writes about a tip for the bathroom showdown. Ideally, you want to wait to hold it until the other person flushes their toilet. That way, the sound of your pooping is masked by the flushing. Otherwise, you can flush your toilet to drown out the sound, and it also works as a courtesy flush so there's no stink. The second way will probably result in you doing a double flush, and the other person or people might still know that you pooped, but at least they won't have actually heard the incriminating noises. So that's from Paige, I will say... Uh, our bathroom, sometimes you get like a mystery flush, mm-hmm. and you can always just say, that toilet was just flushing like crazy. Auto flush. Auto flush. It wasn't me flushing to hide my poop. So guys, send us your thoughts on anything and everything. We love getting emails from you guys. They make our day. The email address is momstuff at During the week, we have a blog. It's called How To Stuff, and you can find that blog as well as many other articles on sex. At
0: HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking.